So Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men travelling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who called on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptised and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Now, have you noticed that the more extreme someone's new diet or new exercise regime is, the more they want to talk about it. How do you know that someone has taken on a crazy new diet? They'll tell you at every given opportunity. How do you know that someone's taken on a new fitness regime? They'll tell you at every given opportunity. They want to talk about it because they're very enthusiastic about the new choices that they've made, about their new lifestyle. But most of us just look on and think, that all looks pretty extreme. It's fine for you, but I'm not really interested. They may well share some of the benefits of just eating raw vegetables and fruit, but the rest of us just see a long list of things that would be called to give up to follow that lifestyle. It sounds great for you, but I am just not interested. Now we need to acknowledge that actually much of the world looks at Christians in the same way. It's fine for you, but honestly, it just seems pretty extreme to me. I know that you think there are some good things about what you believe and there are some benefits, but all I really see is a long list of things that you're calling me to give up. Now, there are many reasons that people reject the Christian message, but in my experience, one of the key reasons is that Christianity is seen as an extreme life choice 
That means giving up loads of things that people currently enjoy. Christianity is seen as a list of rules and restrictions, which doesn't look very appealing. Well, this morning, we're going to be looking at one of the most famous conversion stories that there is. As we look at the events that sat around Saul becoming a Christian, I hope they'll see that this is not the story of a man taking on a load of extra rules and restrictions. Instead, this is the testimony of a man finally finding rest. A man who is exhausted by his deep desire to show that he matters, that he is good, that he is important. When this man meets Jesus, he doesn't find an extra burden to carry. Instead, he finally finds a place to lay down his striving. I hope we'll see that Christianity is not just about finding a list of rules. It's about meeting God and subsequently finding joy, peace and rest. I hope we'll see that Christianity is not good advice. It's good news. Now, if you're thinking, I'm still not interested, I've heard your message before, and it's not just that I am indifferent to the Christian message, I actually think it's damaging. I'm, a, I'm not only not interested, I'm opposed. Well, if that's you this morning, thank you so much for listening. I think you're really going to like the guy in today's passage, because like you, Saul was not just indifferent to the Christian message, he hated it. He wanted it stamped out of existence. Let's take a look at how Saul, who would later become Paul, went from being utterly opposed to the Christian message, went on to become one of the main contributors to the second half of the Bible. We're going to break the passage down into three sections. Striving, collision and grace. So our first point is striving. Now, in the previous chapters of Acts, we've seen that Saul was there when Stephen, who was a Christian, was stoned to death because of his faith in Jesus. Luke records it, who records the events, makes it very clear that Saul didn't just see what happened, but it actually says he approved of their killing him. Now, just imagine witnessing an angry mob of people throwing stones at someone until they die. Now, to watch that indifferently, that's pretty strange. But to watch that and think, yes, that's a good thing. I'm glad that that happened. You would really have to hate the person who was being the victim. Verse 1 tells us Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. The language that's being used here should conjure up images of a horse snorting furiously before it charges. There's something primal about this level of rage and hatred that Saul feels towards Christians. Now, since Stephen's death, many of the Christians have fled from Jerusalem, but Paul was so zealous in his hatred towards them that he decided he was going to pursue them all the way to Damascus. Now, just to put, in that, con that, to put that in context, that's the equivalent of walking from London to Cardiff because you hate someone. Now, to understand why Saul hated Christians so much, we need to know a little bit more about him before this encounter. In a letter that he later wrote to the church in Philippi, Saul summarises his early life like this. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, 
of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. That last word really summarises what Saul thought of himself before this encounter on the road to Damascus. He not only knew God's law inside out, as far as he was concerned, he kept it. He considered himself faultless. Saul had built his identity around what he had done and it left him feeling morally superior to those around him. And here the Christians were proclaiming a Messiah who had come in weakness and humility, not for the good and the upright, but to rescue those who knew that they weren't good enough. To rescue those who recognised they were sinful, moral failures. How dare they? Saul had spent his life earning the right to be called a child of God. And now tax collectors and sinners were being welcomed into this family. It was completely unthinkable. Now you may well be thinking, how on earth has this, is this relevant for today? It sounds like Saul was already some sort of religious nut and all he did was convert to some other kind of religious nut. What's that got to do with today? What's that got to do with us? Well, there's probably not many of us in this room who are building our identity on our compliance to the Mosaic law. But there are plenty of us who are building our identity on what we do, on how well we feel we live up to some sort of moral code, who like Saul are trying to prove to the world that we are one of the good ones. We're all right. We're not like all those other people. The world tells us that it's really what we do that determines our value. I'm valuable because I contribute to society, because I give some of my money to charity. I'm valuable because I love and provide for my family, or I'm valuable because I'm so good at my job. It's funny, there's this strange tension. I'd go as far as contradiction in modern life. One of the things that we hate most is to be judged by other people. We're told that no one has the right to condemn our choices. As long as we're not hurting anyone, then really we can do whatever we want. And yet at the same time, we're more hungry for other people's approval than at any other time in history. We don't want to be judged by others, but it seems we are desperate for validation. We want someone to look at us and tell us, you are valuable. People have often asked me when I was in the police, were you ever scared? And for sure, sometimes on the way to certain jobs, the hairs on the back of your neck would stand up. But do you know the thing that was really going through my head on the way to those calls? It wasn't, am I going to get hurt at this incident? It's, what will people think if I mess up? On my old team, you had to prove yourself every single day, every single call. Was my driving good enough? Did I run comms well enough? Did I make the right decisions? You feel like you're having to prove yourself every day and it's exhausting. And here's a hard truth. We all mess up at some point. When that happens, how are we going to cope? Now Saul, I'm sure he would never admit it, but he must have been exhausted trying to prove 
how good he was, how valuable he was. Hunting Christians in Jerusalem just wasn't cutting it anymore. So now he was going to go all the way to Damascus. And it was on the road to Damascus that he experienced, point two, a collision. Verse three says, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Now, as a married man with two daughters, I have spent far too much time waiting out changing, outside changing rooms in clothes shops. I have lost count of how many times I've seen an item of clothing picked up off the peg and the person says, oh, this is lovely. This is going to look really good with my favourite pair of jeans or whatever the item of clothing might be. And I say, brilliant, just buy it and we can go home. <laughs> But then you have that immortal phrase, I just need to go and try it on. So I'm waiting outside and a few minutes later, the person appears with a rather sudden look on their face and says, no, it's just not right. Now I'm told that the problem is the lighting in changing rooms. <laughs> on the shop floor, the clothes look great, but when you put them on under the three million watt candle power bulbs that they put in changing rooms, suddenly it's not quite as good as you thought it was. Now most of us like to think that we are pretty good. We may have a few rough edges, but generally we're not bad. We might not use the word faultless, but we're definitely on the right side of the line that separates good people from bad people. Now we can spend our whole lives convincing ourselves that we're pretty good, but one day, like Saul, we will come before God's light, which is a lot brighter than the light you find in changing rooms. And that light exposes what we are really like. When we meet the one who is truly good, when we're exposed to that level of perfection, our attempts to prove that we are good are shown for what they really are. In a literal flash, Saul's life came crashing down exposed by God's light for the first time he had to confess he didn't meet God's standards he was what the Bible calls a sinner I mean do we think we'll fare any better I think we can forget God's law for a moment the difficult truth is that we don't actually live up to our own moral code if you want evidence of that you just need to look at the way most of us drive now, if someone does something selfish or makes a mistake or drives too fast in front of me, I'm like, you flipping idiot, where'd you get your driving licence? A cereal packet, shouldn't be on the road, mate. <laughs> However, if I'm driving too fast, I'm like, well, I'm a good driver, aren't I? I know the limits of my vehicle. And if I make a mistake, I'm quick to say, well, I'm only human. The truth is, I don't drive to the standards I expect everybody else to drive to. But the really hard truth is, if I'm honest, I don't live to the moral standards that I expect everyone else to live to. I mean, you might not believe in God, but if he does exist, how do you think he'll view you? You may well think, well, I'm not that bad, and I'm pretty sure if there is a heaven, he'll let me in. Well, I'm sorry to share a hard truth, but just like Saul, when we're exposed to God's unapproachable light which one day we all will be we'll see that we deserve nothing from God 
for his judgment. It gets worse for Saul. Bear in mind that he's on the road to Damascus to go and hunt followers of Jesus. Who should appear in this flash of blinding light? Verse 5, I am Jesus, whom you were persecuting. In what must have been an awful moment for Saul, he realises that Stephen had been telling the truth. Jesus was not only the Messiah, Jesus had not only risen from the grave, but Jesus was now standing at the right hand of God and ruling in glory. And Saul had been persecuting those who chose to follow him. I would imagine at this point, Saul thought he was just going to get struck dead in an instant. But what follows, in what follows, Saul does not receive what he deserves from God. He receives, point three, grace. Now, Ananias really is the unsung hero in this passage, arguably of the book of Acts. In verses 10 to 12, God calls him to go and find Saul and lay hands on him to pray that his sight would be returned to him. Ananias, understandably, says, God, do you know Saul? Because he's come to Damascus to lay his hands on Christians and he's not wanting to pray for us. He's wanting us to have us thrown in prison. God's response to Ananias in verse 15 is emphatic. Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name. So he does. He puts aside his concerns and he trusts in God. I mean, that right there could be the whole sermon. He was honest with his fears and concerns before God, but he trusted that God had a bigger plan that he couldn't understand, and he obediently followed. Are we willing to step out in faith and trust God even when we can't understand? Jesus showing up on the road to Damascus is obviously the pivotal point in this encounter, but I actually wonder if Saul would have been just as blown away by what happened in verse 17. I want you to take a moment to picture Saul sitting in a house in Damascus. Not only has his life just been turned upside down, not only is he now blind, he's also not eaten or drunk anything for three days. Now throughout his, the earlier part of his life, he had hunted the Christians mercilessly. He'd watched them die and he'd thrown them in prison. But now the shoe was on the other foot. How were the Christians going to respond? How were they going to respond now he was the vulnerable one? Imagine him sitting there in darkness and he feels a hand come and lay on his shoulder. He must have flinched. But look at what Ananias says in verse 15. Sorry, verse 17. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Brother. If Saul had seen Ananias a few days earlier, he'd have had him arrested and thrown in prison. Saul's religion had been based on how he treated others. It was based on the fact that he was good enough. That meant when he saw other people, he looked down on them as moral failures. Ananias, on the other hand, knew that his standing before God was not based upon how good he was. It wasn't based on his performance. It was based on what Jesus had done for him. 
not on his moral superiority, but on the fact that he had been redeemed by Jesus. When he looked at Saul, he didn't see all the stuff Saul had done in the past. Instead, he had his eyes firmly fixed on what Jesus had in store for Paul. All that Jesus was going to achieve through Paul. You see, Ananias had been transformed by God's undeserved gift of grace. He knew that Jesus died on, his cro- on, on the cross for his people. And because of that, forgiveness was only the beginning. Jesus welcomes those who trust in him into his family. In that family, striving to prove that we are good enough can end. Because God says, you are mine. In God's family, your value will never again be based upon your performance Instead, it is based upon the blood of Jesus, which was spilt to make you pure. The only way that a person can approach the unapproachable light of Jesus is when they've been washed with the blood of Jesus. Saul's conversion didn't involve him receiving a set of instructions. It involved him being welcomed by a saviour. If we come to Jesus and we repent of the wrong things we've done, if we trust in what he has done rather than what we do, then on that day when we do come before God, his light will no longer expose our sin. Instead, it will reflect the glory of Jesus Christ. We won't be cast out. We'll be welcomed in as children of God. This passage goes on to show us the intimacy of relationship that God gives his people. Look again at verse 5. When Saul sees Jesus, he says, who are you? Jesus replies, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, Jesus could have said, I am Jesus and you're persecuting my people. But he goes even further. You see, the Bible describes God's people as being the body of Christ. And he is our head. We are linked together in such a fashion that it's like we're one person. Now think of your own body for a moment. If you hurt your hand, your head doesn't just go, oh well, it's not the head. Maybe I'll just cut it off and get a new one. When part of our body is hurting, the head feels that hurt as well. And more than that, the head wants to see that part of the body get better. So it holds it close, it nurtures it, it wants to see it restored to full health. That's the way that Jesus cares for his people. If you're a Christian, that's the way that Jesus cares for you. Even when we mess up again and again. Saul had an awful lot of knowledge about God. He thought he had a relationship with God. But it was in this encounter that he realised a relationship this incredible could never be earned. It could only be received as a free gift by those who repent of their sins and put their faith not in their own performance, but in what Jesus has done. 
The rest of the New Testament shows us that Paul's life was far from easy after this. In fact, it got a lot more difficult. Jesus warns him of that. His life was tough. But he was able to face that hardship as he rested in Jesus' performance, not in his own. As he rested in Jesus' undeserved gift of love. I want to finish by asking a question. What does all this mean for Monday morning? It's all good and well to talk about God's love in church on a Sunday, but in under 24 hours, when the week begins rushing at you, what difference does all of this make? Now, most of you know that in the not too distant future, I'm going to be returning to the police. I'm already aware of that old fear creeping up again, the fear of messing up, the need to prove myself. Isn't the point of this passage that when you become a Christian, all that can stop? Well, when you become a Christian, your identity changes forever. You become a child of God. He is the one who sets your value. That is an unchangeable truth. To use Jesus' own words, it is finished. The war has been won, but the battle continues. The daily fight for the Christian is living out our new identity. It is fighting the urge to find our value in what we do instead of what Christ has done. It is the fight to move that truth which we hold in our minds down into our hearts, where it not only changes what we do, but why we do it. The world will continue to tell us that you are what you do, which is why we need to continually fix our eyes on Jesus and hear him say every day, no, you are what I have done. It's not easy, but we must choose to listen to his voice above all others. We need to see that reading the Bible and praying are not chores done by Christians, They're the way that we come and hear Jesus say to us, I love you, I died for you. That's how valuable you are. And do you know what? When you do that, it brings freedom. Because instead of striving to find your identity in things like family or work or anything else, you can actually enjoy those things. When I mess up at work, I still don't like it, but it doesn't break me because I know that my true value is not found in how well I do my job. It's found in Jesus, and that will never change. This passage tells us that no one is beyond God's love. If you don't know Jesus, then no matter what you've done in the past, come to him where you will find rest. Rest that will never end, because it is not based upon your performance. It's based upon God. If you do already know Jesus, then trust him. If you mess up, acknowledge it. Bring your sin before him and fix your eyes on Jesus once again, on his amazing grace. Remember that no one is beyond the reach of a loving saviour. Keep pointing other people to him every day by living out your new identity as a child of God.